that the very last, the five weeks that we've been in the series sets us up to see how we can practice that. Not just what took place 2,000 years ago, but how we can do that today. And we're looking at the Good Samaritan passage, one that's all obviously very well known. Uh, this is a, of course, phrase today. Uh, typically, we think of this is the person who is just doing some good works, maybe helping to fix a flat on the side of the road. I remember we were in West Texas when I was growing up. I was probably 18, 19 years of age. My father was not on that trip with us to West Texas to see my family. And we got a flat tire like a mile outside of the house where we were staying. And no sooner did I step out of the car than someone in a Texas-sized pickup truck pulled up behind us. He jumped out and he said, I can fix that. (laughs) And he did. Great. Good Samaritan, right? But what if it's more than that? What if we rob ourselves? The guy in the passage was robbed, but we rob ourselves of understanding how it connects to the gifts, and particularly mercy and services we're going to see this morning. And so let me give you three reasons why we're, we're choosing these gifts. Number one, did you know that according to the assessments that we just did and the training that we had this past Sunday, by the way, a ton of you showed up for the training. Thank you so much. Uh, it was awesome. Uh, Anna, again, thank you so much for the work that you and Reed did and the, the team around you. Uh, but did you know that the number two and three most common gifts in our church are mercy and service? 30% of you have that as one of the top three gifts in your makeup, as it were. That's one reason why we're doing that. I want to hit as many people as possible this morning with your gift. Number two, that means 70% of us need to listen. Well, we all need to listen, but 70% of us need to recognize, man, I don't have that gift in spades the way they do. Let me tell you, do you know what my top two, or is that the way to put it, lowest gifts were? Service and mercy. Let me tell you who's listening. You know who's been listening this whole week? Me. In fact, you know that we, for those of you who took the assessment, you know that we have numbers assigned and those are numbers of intensity. How much of the gift do you have in intensity, that sort of thing like that? And it goes all the way up to like 23, 24. Service was a five for me. <laughs> and, and mercy wasn't too far behind. You know, those of you with gift of mercy are like, really? Seriously? Hey, have some mercy on me, okay? Um, but look, we, 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 so for 70% of us, like, we, you know, we need to say, hey, what is this gift? How does it operate? And the, and the third reason why is that we, as, as Reed said, uh, in our annual elder retreat this past weekend, we talked a lot about what does it mean to be an outward-facing church? And we cannot be an outward-facing church without these gifts leading the way. These, this is the portal to love our city well. And love each other, of course, but then love the city, love our neighbors. The key phrase I want you to hold on to this morning is the one who shows mercy. The one who shows mercy. And what Jesus does is he, he invokes an image of the Samaritan to get us there. Let me tell you, when he invokes, he provokes. Because this image of a Samaritan, wait till you see it, was unexpected. The unexpected hero of the story, as it were. And I wanted to provoke us as well. Not just racially, ethnically, and so forth, which is part of what was going on there. I want to provoke and stir us up. I want, I want the gifts within us to be stirred up. Those that are latent gifts, as well as those that where you have a gift in spades, to provoke us to say, what does it mean to be a church of mercy? What does it mean to be a church that serves as well? What we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at this passage. And you know, as I tell the staff and uh, some of our other pastors here, there are 20 sermons in every passage. 
And I've preached this one before, but here's the one I have for you today. I want to look through the lens of relationships today. So the first thing that we're going to look at is the relationship between Jesus and the lawyer. And secondly, in the parable itself, we're going to look at the relationship between the travelers and the needy person. Then lastly, we're going to look at the relationship between the gifts and the church. Follow? So this is where we're headed. Look at verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, I know that we have a number of lawyers in our midst. We are a Presbyterian church, after all. We like good order. Uh, so thank you to all the lawyers in our church. And I, I, I have to say, you guys get a bad rap in the Scriptures. Um, yeah, now, this is a religious lawyer, and, and so this is uh, someone who, there's 600 plus commandments in the Old Testament, and, and we're told here that this particular religious lawyer wants to test Jesus. Now, that's important, because it says something about the motivation. Now, you know that we've, we've taught before, Mike most recently taught on the rich young ruler, uh, a little bit later on in the Gospel of Luke, a few chapters later, and the rich young ruler uh, approaches Jesus not to test him. But because of this earnest desire, this eagerness, say, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's the exact same question. But here, it's a test. It's a trap. Now, we're not told exactly uh, what that, that, that uh, trap or the test was supposed to entail, but we just know that his heart wasn't love. It was a desire to catch Jesus, maybe saying something wrong, at least according to the religious leaders. We'll see how that plays in here in a little second here. But he comes in to test him. Now look at verses 26 through 28. How does Jesus respond? What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this. And you will live. Now, this is what every good religious lawyer knew by heart. Because this is what's called the Shema in the Old Testament. It goes back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. This is what every Jewish family would have known in their household. They would have often probably used this on rhythmic, certainly a daily basis probably, to remind themselves of who is their God and how do they relate to him? So listen, to this is from Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Now, we would say that's the vertical. This is the relationship that's vertical in nature. But rightfully so. What does the lawyer do? He says, no, but I need to connect it to the horizontal. And what is the horizontal? Leviticus 19.18 says this, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now some of you also recognize that, that in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 22, verses 37-40, through 40, there's another story of another man who comes to Jesus. And in this case, the man comes to Jesus and he says, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment? Remember this one? What is the greatest commandment? And how does Jesus respond? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then the second is like the first. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Vertical, horizontal. Once again, vertical and horizontal. Now, why do I share that here at the outset? I, I want to share something with you. I want, I want you to hold on to this regardless of whether mercy and service is your number one, two, or three most a powerful gift, as it were, or strongest gift, or whether it's not. This is true for all the gifts. Worship precedes your gift. Worship precedes your gift. 
In fact, this is so important that that I've decided that we're going to switch gears. We're going to finish Mark's gospel. We've been in that for a long period of time. So we've been waiting for, to, for us to get finally to the end of Mark's gospel after 18 months. We're going to do that between now or next week in Easter. But after that, I've decided we're going to switch gears. And we're going to spend the balance of the rest of this ministry year and into probably early next year uh, looking at the five marks of the church. And the most foundational one of the five marks of the church is worship. And we're going to look at that. We're going to say this is the foundation for which all the gifts operate. But let me say something very important to you this morning. Just because worship receives mercy doesn't mean that you're operating with a vertical worship. This morning, just like the young lawyer here, you could be operating with a, a different form of worship that celebrates your ethnicity, that celebrates your political heritage, your ideology. So anything that is worthy, that's where we get the word worship from, that which we declare to be worthy of high value or greatest value, that is the object of your worship. And so this morning, what I want you to see was true for the lawyer can also be true for us 2,000 years later. What drives us in our use of the gifts for our church community, our neighbors, our city, the world, will be determined in part the object of your worship. Make no mistake about it. Worship precedes every gift, including service and mercy. And so it begs the question, what is he worshiping? We'll, I think, get to that here in a second. But what, what Jesus is saying, or what he's trying to suss out here, is that there needs to be a motivation of devotion. That it precedes the use of the gifts. But this sets us up for the problem in verse 29. But he, desiring to justify himself said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? What does that mean to justify himself? Jesus has asked a question back to the questioner, and he's answered correctly in the school of life. Uh, ding, 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 go to the head of the class. You got that question right. Now, all you need to do is now go and practice this. And he's caught. Because what he's hoping Jesus would say we're hoping it was that he would narrow down the lines of who should receive mercy. So behind the question of who is my neighbor is really the question of who should I care for? Now what Jesus is going to do here in the parable is he's going to, he's going to show us that it's the wrong question. It's not a question of uh, who is my neighbor, but how do I serve my neighbor? And as we're going to see here, everyone is our neighbor. More on that here in a second. But I want you to see that because he begins with a wrong motivation, because his worship is ethnically based, racially based, we'll see that here in a second regarding the Samaritan and why that's the case, Jesus is already beginning to, to, uh, to field, as it were, the true nature of his heart, the true nature of his character, which leads to another thing that really important I want to say to all of us, whether mercy is your gift, service is your gift, or there's something else you need to also hear this. It's not just that worship precedes your gift. But the object of your worship shapes the character for the use of the gift. In other words, if you are a supremacist racially, if you are a supremacist ideologically, sometimes those go hand in hand, but not necessarily. That God, as it were, will shape your character. What you'll find is that you only want to serve people like yourself. 
people who believe the things that you believe. People who look like you, who smell like you, who act like you. It is incredibly easy to serve those who look like us, who sound like us, who culturally agree with us, politically and so forth. Jesus says it's the wrong question. Today's tribalism is killing us. You know, I say that virtually every week, don't I? Sorry, Debbie Downer. But it's true. It's killing us. Sometimes it splits church communities. It certainly splits cultures. And into that ethos is this calling for mercy. And I think that's what sets us up here for the second set of relationships. And it's in the parable itself. So Jesus and the lawyer are sort of pitted. And and Jesus, of course, answers with his own questions to really bring out the flavor of the Shema and the call horizontally to love the neighbor. But that begs the question, to answer his question, who is my neighbor? How does Jesus respond? With a parable. And he shows us the relationship between three travelers and a needy person. Let's look at that now. Looking at verse 30. Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, I know that you, nearly all of you have probably heard this parable before. Jerusalem and Jericho was about 18 miles apart, about 3,000 feet of elevation gain going from Jericho up to Jerusalem. Now, in 2008, Kirsten and I got to go to Israel, and we were in an air-conditioned motor coach on that road. It was a lot easier uh, today than it was back then. Uh, Even centuries after the time of Jesus, it was an incredibly dangerous road where thieves would hang out in caves along the road coming up from Jericho to Jerusalem. And so this parable would have been one that would have sounded familiar to their ears, a familiar story as it were. But here's what's important. Now, parables were an intentional tool of teaching that were based upon a reality. It had the feeling of reality, but it's a story. Now, here's why that's important. Because when you are a rabbi and you're teaching, you get to determine the details of that story. Now, there are two incredibly important details that were told here in verse 30 to set this story up. First, he was stripped naked. Why is that important? Because, remember... Your clothing demonstrates your culture. It says something about where you're from. I remember growing up in the 80s in the high school, you know, we had the preppies, we had the jocks, we had the alternative crowd. Uh, today, you know, my girls would say, yeah, there's the emo crowd. There's these different tribes, as it were. And so even 2,000 years later, this is true, but 2,000 years ago, how you dressed demonstrate where you were from. And so what Jesus is showing us here between the fact that he is uh, empty of clothing, he's naked, but second, he's empty of speech. He's half dead. He can't speak. He's practically in a coma. And so there's no dialect. There's no language to inform the reader in the story, the travelers, of who is this guy? In other words, what Jesus is setting the story up for is to say, look, the only decision to make here is whether or not you will show mercy. I'm taking away every other, other thing that might get in the way, and I'm only asking the question, do you see someone in need? That's it. Just do you see someone in need? So that's verse 30. is setting this, this picture up here. It is a complete setup for the religious lawyer. But let's now look at verses 31 to 32. The first of the two, or excuse me, two of the first three travelers here. 
Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. You see the continuity between these two. They both passed by. Now, who's the priest? The priest was coming down, it says, from Jerusalem. Now, here's why that's important. Again, another little detail of why he's teaching the way he's teaching it. They were coming down. Why is that important? Because if you were a priest, you have just finished your service in the temple in Jerusalem, and now you're going back home, maybe to Jericho. Same with the Levite. Levi was serving the priest, sort of like an assistant, an acolyte, something like that. And so both these characters are coming down. Now, the reason why that's so important is because if you touched a dead body, you would be ritually impure. And it takes basically a couple weeks to work ritualistically through your impurity. And so their service is done in the temple. And so there's no threat to their ability to be priests and Levites because they're done. And you don't go back probably for another six or eight weeks back. That's typically what happened here. That's an important detail. In other words, they had every reason to stop and assist someone in need. And what happened? They don't. They come, they view, and they keep moving. They come, they view, and they keep moving. One of the things that we stress here at City Church Eastside is attunement. We'll use that word. A lot of you are familiar with that. From leaders training, uh, one of our people, one of our leaders even used that word. Attunement here. What does it mean to be attuned? Well, we talk a lot about that with parenting. We talk a lot about, like, were you attuned to your child or, or do you feel like your parents were attuned to you when you were young? And we say attachment theory and those sorts of things. It's very important. Did you have the eyes of your mother? Did you have the eyes of your father? Attunement. And one of the things that I think is at the heart of the gift of mercy is the ability to see someone. When we first moved here 18, 19, 20 years ago, I had a neighbor two doors down, and her primary work was to work with, uh, she ran a bus basically, her name was Julia, and she ran a bus uh, from the church that she was working at uh, to these medical appointments for the homeless. And, and so I knew her for work, and you know, coming in, I wanted to plant a church, and we're in the city, we, homelessness is part of our community, and, and so I said, Julia, I said, look, what's the most important thing you can share with me about, about as, I, as a pastor, and I, we started church, like, about homelessness. And the, what's the most important thing? Now, I'll tell you the truth. I thought she would answer by saying, well, why don't you have a team of people go work at a soup kitchen or something like that, feed the homeless, uh, or maybe drive a bus and do what I'm doing. I thought it'd be some sort of action quite like that. But the first thing she said is this. She said, Scott, look them in the eye. Let me tell you, 18 years later, I know exactly where I was. I can remember 18 years later where I was standing on the sidewalk when she said that. My jaw about hit the ground. It was so simple and yet so powerful and provocative. She was saying, do you see them? Are you aware that they're there? Yesterday, we were, uh, over lunch, we were talking about an article that one of our elders came across, new research that says that, that Atlanta is the most stressed out city in North America. The most stressed out city. And one of the most stressed out cities globally. 
Now, research comes and goes. Different metrics are used. But I think all of us in here naturally say, well, I don't know if it's number one, but it's stressful. Let me tell you, this is where I want to provoke you. I think one of the reasons why it's so stressful is because when you're stressed, you can't see people who are stressed. You can't see the need. One of the other things that we talked about, quite honestly, and and, let me tell you, be proud of your elders. They were brutally honest with themselves. They said, this is true of us as well. We're too busy. We're we're laughing. The the motto of Atlanta is the city too busy to hate. And I said, maybe it's it's just the city that's too busy. And, And when you are busy with all the different opportunities that are available to us, the access that we have through our money, our connections and our influence, you can't see those without it. You just can't. When you're running fast, you can't see people in need. Now, I... Understand that as I say that, you're thinking a lot, oh, that's outward. But it's also true inward as well. It's also true in our congregation. When you're running a million miles an hour, it's hard to see each other. Attunement. I want you to feel the weight of that. I don't want to take that weight away. I want you to feel the weight of that. Because I want us to slow down. In this city, I want us to teach the city how to slow down. You know, the difference between a thermostat and a thermometer. A thermometer just shows you what's already there. No different. A thermostat sets the temperature. I want us to be more like a thermostat. And any gift, but certainly this gift, setting and regulating, as it were, the cultural temperature of, of mercy. See those who often go unseen. You feel the weight of that with me? It'd be really easy here to just conclude with that. In fact, let me read to you verses 36 and 37. I want you to see how Jesus concludes this. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Now, what has happened here? Earlier, in fact, let's read now verses uh, 33 through 35. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And then right after that, he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn, took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. At the moment that Jesus said, when a Samaritan walked by, the hair on the back of the head of the religious lawyer and all those listening would have gone up, including, by the way, the Jewish disciples. The Samaritans were half-breeds. The Samaritans were the hated people. I mean, if there's one people group <laughs> that were hated uh, more than anyone else, it was the Samaritans. Next to the Gentiles, those filthy pagan dogs were the half-breeds. 
And so Jesus sets the story up to say that the religious establishment has failed. Religion is empty. And it's the half-breed who's the hero. This provoked them, needless to say. But I want you to see, what is it that the Samaritan did? When he says, go and do likewise at the very end there, what is it that the Samaritan did that he says, I want you to go and do likewise? It says that it says a number of things there in those verses. They bound up his wounds. He said, poured oil and wine on the wound. By the way, the oil was to soothe the cuts. But it was the wine that disinfected. It was a natural disinfectant. And it says they placed him on his own animal, and then he, he gave money. And then what did he say? He said, look, here's, here's money to get him started, but you, whatever it cost, whatever it cost, I'm coming back, I'll take care of the bill. Whatever it cost. I just want to make sure this man is going to be taken care of. Now, the Samaritan also was looking at a naked guy when he made a decision. He did not know where this guy was from, which is fascinating because in that area, that was enemy territory. If you're a Samaritan on the road between Jericho and Jerusalem, you are in, in the heart of the enemy territory. But he did not flinch, did he? He stopped. And he said, whatever it takes. And then he said, I'm coming back, which was threatening to him. He could have been killed. He could have been beaten up just for being a Samaritan. His cloak would have given that away. His accent would have given that away. He said, I'll take care of the bill, whatever it cost. Now, here's the question. In light of what he did, here's the question I have for us as a congregation. Which character are you in the story? Now, there are a number of characters here. I'm not talking about Jesus and the lawyer. I'm talking about in the, the story that there's three travelers, there's the robbers, there's the needy man. Which character are you? Let me tell you how most people answer that question. Most people answer that question by saying, well, you know what? If I'm honest, Scott, I'm either the priest or the Levite. I, I don't, I'm too busy. I don't slow down. That sort of thing like that. Or, or maybe it, it's possible, okay? In a place of humility. I, I really believe this is possible. You could say, you know what? I'll be honest. I, I think I'm like a Samaritan right now. I, I feel like I'm in a good place and I'm able to slow down and care for but I actually don't think that's what Jesus wants us to see or to find ourselves in the story. I think it's actually the man who's been beaten within a half inch of death. And here's the reason why. At the time, they wouldn't have seen this, but on the other side of the crucifixion of Jesus, on the other side of the resurrection, they would have seen this. They would have seen, Jesus says, go and do likewise, and, and they, they would say, but I can't. In light of what you said, it means to follow you, to follow God perfectly. I can't do that. And he would have said, but I can. Jesus did. Now you can go and do likewise. I think what we're supposed to see here is that we, like Ephesians chapters 1 and 2 says, we are dead in our transgressions. We can't speak. There's nothing for us to do here. So if I change the question instead of which character are you, and instead I say, who is most radically neighbored? All of you would say the same thing. Oh, it's the dead person. Don't you see? This is the gospel. Jesus has radically neighbored you. He looked at you while yet an enemy. Romans 5.8. While yet an enemy. Christ died for us. We were the enemies. The Samaritans, the Jews, enemies. We were the enemies of God. And he radically neighbored us. There's nothing in us. We were a stench in the nostrils due to our sin. 
we were living death. And he radically, radically neighbored us. Don't you see? This is the motivation for mercy. It's not, oh, I need to do more. I'm feeling guilty. Don't live under obligation. That's not the gospel. That's morality. The gospel is you have been radically neighbored. And I'll tell you this much. You start to hear stories of the people that work with the homeless, for instance, just as one example. You know how many of those people have been homeless themselves? Or down, and down on their luck, however you want to define that. When you have received great, endearing love, you desire to love greatly as well. When you see that the most important part of the story is the Samaritan who had compassion, the word is a compound word, with passion. The word passion literally means suffering. You see, oh my gosh, that's Jesus. Jesus with passion, the passion of the Christ. As we return to Mark here in the last few weeks here prior to Good Friday and, of course, Resurrection Sunday, we remember his passion. We remember that he had compassion on us. And it's his passion that, that becomes our passion, to have compassion on others. The action of mercy and service doesn't, doesn't bring you life. It's the evidence of true life within you. When you're rightfully motivated, it is the evidence of God's life within you. Which leads to the last thing I, I want to say, and that is, what do we do with this? The gifts in the church. What do we do? I want to say this. This is an all-call, y'all. I worked really hard on that. All-call, y'all. It's not just for the 30% of you who have the gift in spades. It's for all of us. Say, wait a minute, Scott. Isn't the point of the gifts is that we serve those with the gifts? Yes. But none of you, I looked at your results. Honestly, your results too. None of you had a zero by mercy. Guess what? We all have the gifts. Think about that. Did you ever think about that? We all have the gifts. Every single one of you in this room has the gift of mercy. You just don't have it in spades. Now here's why I think that's important. Those of you with the gift, I'm talking to the 30%. We need you to lead. The whole reason why we set this whole series up the way that we did. We need you to learn your gifts, be trained in them, and go and do likewise. Why? Because we need you to lead us. Those of us who don't have the gift in spades. We need you to teach us the gift. We need you to model the gift for us so that we can go and do likewise. And for those of us who don't have the, the 70%, now let me talk to you. We need to learn. We need to say, oh, I don't have the gift of evangelism. I don't need to evangelize. Or I don't have the gift of prayer. I don't need to pray. All these, we need to say, you know what? We need to take what we do have and multiply it. There's another parable. This is a two-for-one deal today. There's another parable, the parable of the talents. Very quickly, let me say this in Matthew's Gospel. The parable of the talents, it says that there were three people and they all received a certain amount of money. And, they, and the master said, now, I'm going to be away for a while, and I want you to invest that money. You remember what happened? There's the one talent, the two talents, and the five talents. The two and the five, what did they do? They doubled their talents. What did the one do? They buried it. 
They didn't even get interest. They didn't even invest in the stock market or anything. Bonds, much less bonds, okay? I mean, come on. I mean, you could have at least got a little bit from it. No, they do any of that stuff. The one didn't. They buried their talent. For me, I have a five on that scale with service. And mercy's not far behind. But you know what I can do? I can double it. I can multiply it. And I can do that in part because I'll learn it from you. And so, this is a call for us all. Will we be that church? And I know what you're saying, well, where do I get started? That sort of thing like that. Okay, great, but, but let's start here. Do you see the other people of City Church? Are your eyes attuned to their needs? Do you see what's lacking in our midst? This is a team effort. This is a team sport. And the reason why, in part, I said we're going to look at service and mercy together is because you can have the gift of mercy without the gift of service and vice versa. And you remember what we said about the, about the body of Christ. We need each other. And so often when we, we have needs, whether within the church or outside the church community, it's not just one gift saying, okay, hey, you have the gift in spades. You need to go and do that. No, it's, it's we say, let's form a team. So I go in, in the mission trip to Bolivia. Let's form a team. Let's use the gifts together. Let, let's, the homelessness, the um, leading small group ministry, all, let's form a team. Let's operate together as the body of Christ. That's where I wanted to end this series. Is to show us what we can be. We have gaps. Every church, you, you fill in the blank, this is the best church I've ever been part of, whatever the name of that church is. Let me tell you, they have weaknesses. They have gaps. City Church does as well. But if we can be the church that multiplies the gifts and leads from the strengths for those of us who are weak and vice versa, we can be a church that displays the glory of God to the nations in spades this year together. So may we be that church. Let's pray. Oh, gracious God, we, we thank you for...